Herbaria, the, the collections themselves are the closest thing we can get to a time machine of previous habitats, previous localities, previous um, ecosystems. You are listening to Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is Billy Brown and Tony Crowsdale. So, Tony, you, you explain. What, what are we doing in your basement? Okay, this is like a soft opening of the uh, studio here. We still haven't gotten the new mics and sound soundproofing and, and stuff. But Billy and I just assembled my Billy shelves. Here's to Ikea. Yep. And The uh, best named bookshelves in the world. Indeed. Except for the Tonys, which you can't get in the United States. Oh, did those exist? No, I'm joking. Oh, okay. You never know. Um, there'd be like an umlaut over the O. But yeah, we just assembled the uh, bookshelves. Especially and, with you, a metal umlaut over the O. Yeah. And then we uh, we put up um, uh, all my reference books. Uh, I still got to find places for my like natural history, writing and journals, those kind of those those kind of books. But like the uh, you know. Um, Field guides and reference books are all out right now, and it definitely makes the studio feel feel good. Uh, and it's it's a it's it's such an aspirational activity to shelve a whole bunch of someone else's nature books because there's all these books you don't have, and never not even mentioning the bird books, which is its own library that I'm sitting next to essentially. But the just looking at like like beetles of of North America over there, or Eastern North America. And I had the the spark of the feeling of oh now I'm gonna learn beetles, <laughs> which I'm probably never gonna learn beetles because that's incredible. That's incredible. And Crazy. I have a whole um, but it's still like fun to think about it, you know. And I have a, a shelf that's half full of books in uh, my office that I really should you know purchase those books again for the center and move those home. You know, like I got uh, a lot. Of- I got a lot of books there, like a lot of my insect books and things are over there because I'm more likely to encounter insects to identify at work than here, than home. Well, I said that. I mean, yes, this is the Urban Wildlife Podcast, and we celebrate wildlife that you can find, sidewalk cracks and abandoned lots and all that. And I, yep. But now I live next to a 1,900-acre park in my, you know, my property. This is the Wissahickon Park we've talked about before and where Tony used to work. Yeah. So I, li- I live, you know, two houses down from the trailhead and, you know, my block is, you know, I don't have to cross the street to get to the park. So like the f- park kind of like merges into my backyard, um, you know, not mine directly, but, you know, it's pretty contiguous. So inevitably, you know, by the laws of island biogeography, you're going to find more diversity of animals and plants Neck, you know, as part of a contiguous piece of habitat than you are a fragment. Yes, you will. So, um, before, I was more likely to encounter insects I didn't know and needed to identify at work. Uh, now, I'm about equally as likely. Ah, uh, yeah. So, now I have justification to also, just because of doing my job and getting things going at the center, we have more of an income stream that I can afford to purchase the books because they're... Good to have at work anyway, you know. Yep. They yep. have value for my guests. Because now I don't want to... I keep those books in my office because I don't want the general public to handle them, you know. And so if I purchase them, and I can take them... Not only can I take them home, but I can put them on display where they could be used by the general public. Yep, yep. So. It's your personal collection. Yeah. Yep. 
Awesome. Um, and what kind of birds have you seen in your backyard so far? It's been awesome. Um, my The birding is actually better out of my front yard than my backyard in some ways because um, I have a clearer view of the park from my front yard because my backyard is actually a steep hill. From the top of my hill, I can... And your house faces north, so I bet yeah. you have better light looking from your front yard versus... Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, so the first day, we this is a, we're doing this in January. We moved here December 1st. The first morning we woke up in this house, December 2nd, I guess, we look out, and I have a Bradford pear, which if you know your trees is... is it's time to cut that down. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible tree. It's... Um, um, it's the branches have tight crotches, yeah. and they're known to snap and fall on things, and, it's an, yeah. and they can become invasive. Yep. So I have a Bradford pear, and I was bummed about it, but apparently, apparently, yeah, apparently, <laughs> uh, in December, I guess when the fruit is going through a couple frosts, it becomes very desirable for cedar wax wings. Cedar wax wings. Woo! Oh, hello, Shamu, my new cat. Your new old cat, as you just yeah. Has, uh, we'll talk about Shemu in a minute, but Shemu, come on up. Um, has joined us, and um, but you were saying yeah, that you so got some nice fruit, fruit covers, full robins, your... wax wings, and a Baltimore Oriole. And a Baltimore Oriole should oh. be in Belize or Costa Rica right now. They are known; to some linger on, and some even overwinter here or there. Um, it's not like the rarest of things, but it, you know, it eBird flagged it and put it out on the rare bird alert. So I saw, you know, probably first winter male Baltimore Oriole. That was really cool. And then I've had pileated woodpecker from the house. I've had uh, a raven, which in this part of the in the Piedmont is pretty rare. Yeah. We're getting more common. And then we had a uh, had a bald eagle, like a second year bald eagle, flying flying down. I could see that you know flying over the park. I could see it. Um, so it's been quite good. Um, yeah. From you know I have, you know, bald eagle and raven and. Before I have rock dove, a rock pigeon. But uh, speaking of cats, my cat just showed up um, and is now, uh, you might hear purring because it's quite near the recorder. But um, so I, I adopted a cat that I guess I it rescued it because it literally showed up in the park and it was very friendly. It's a tuxedo cat. I have a thing for tuxedo cats. We talked about tuxedo cats before. Yes, we have. And we talked about Shamu before, but Shamu, I took Shamu to the vet and I took a risk and had it, had it at the time I thought it was a boy. We soon, we observed the 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 junk thought we saw the deflated scrot there um and we took Shemu into the vet and i had a he, the vet said it was at least five years old by his teeth and he's 14 pounds so indicated that this cat had been um cared for until fairly recently because he's not got a 14 pound cat right um in the wild <laughs> yeah. so and how friendly he is so i and the scanned him for a chip had a chip and I said, okay, you know, look up the chip. Um, dun, dun, dun. But, you know, like, so you know, like, we got to be careful because people dump cats and dogs, for that matter, in my park all the time. I don't want this cat to go back to an irresponsible pet owner. Yep. Um, so they said they're going to call the person and they can call, contact me if they wanted the cat back and get it from me. Yeah. Um, which I thought was a good way to handle it. But they also gave me the person's info, which I don't know if they're supposed to, but they did. So I Googled the person. Turns out she died. Yeah. Um, you know, some months ago, and I, uh, her house is five blocks from the park, and and I'm a few blocks south of that. So to me, 
and, and an extremely busy street in between. So the thought that this cat somehow managed to get to the park on its own and then find my facility over the rec center, which is much closer. No, the cat got dumped. Yeah. Yeah. So it's clear the cat, you know, probably someone inherited the cat after she died and dumped it. And the person's picture, she looked lovely. Um, big smile. So I hope that, you know, um, obviously I don't, you know, believe that you are conscious and in heaven after death. But, you know, if there is some sort of thing like that, that person can rest assured knowing that this cat is well loved. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, indeed. And, yeah, maybe we won't beat the cat drum for today, but, yeah, saving some of our anger for, as much as we get angry at the people who, what I call the cat hoarders and the invasive species lobby, which is Tony's term, um, always got to credit him for that, uh, you also got to save some anger for the people that dump their cats. Um, but you also have some sympathy, because... I bet you these folks are, you know, I mean, they could, so could be jerks, but they could also, in their mind, be cats are fine outside. And they're worried it's going to get put down if they drop it off at at ACT. Yeah, Yeah. or or they called up uh, the nearest animal shelter. This is the frustrating part, yeah. You know, and I've tried to bring cats to the nearest. For me, uh, you know, I think we covered it. I don't drive. And, um, you know, I'm not going to Uber, I'm not going to spend 30 bucks to Uber to North Philly, you know to drop off a cat and then take an hour and a half bus back. Yeah. Um, so I, but there's a, I can buy public, I've actually before put a cat in a box and took it on the L to, uh, like literally duct taped it in a, in a car box with holes in it and took it to the shelter down on 11th and, uh, on 11th and Spruce or whatever that locust and the, uh, Morris. Morris. I like them. They, I think they're open admission. They, no, not anymore. Yeah, they are. I called them and said they're full. Oh crap! And they said they won't. They said they'd ha- they're like, well, we'd have to euthanize a cat to bring yours in, you know, the one you have. And I was like, well, that's fine with me. <laughs> but and that was a and that was another good cat. But luckily, someone else adopted that one. And and Shamu, I, I just who was named Oreo originally. Uh, but, but Shamu's that, a better name. Yeah, and Shamu jumped on my lap and then on my shoulder, and I was like, well, I'm keeping it. So we we lucked out. And this cat, by the way, is a slaughterer. Caught a mouse already in the house it just now called a camel cricket yeah. and um but shamu occasionally make a dash for it outside and he'll go right for the birds he sits in the window and whines at birds so good thing this cat's inside indeed what's our topic today billy well our topic today oh uh, real quick yes as always we're partially sponsored by steiner gotta mention them <laughs> yes we should yeah what does steiner do tony uh steiner makes incredibly wonderful optics there you go so Tony and I were just talking about how, um, how I I have a pair of Eagle Optics binoculars that I like. I actually got a pair originally when I got married the first time, back in two thousand five. And a birder friend, I was not a birder at all at that point, was like, "Here you go, um, you know, you can look at turtles with it." And I did, but also I beat the crap out of that pair of binoculars over the years, um, and then sent them in. Uh, they replaced them, which I now realize is a binocular thing, but I still find it amazing that quality binocular manufacturers just replace your binoculars when they break, um, even if it's sometimes your fault. In any case, um, I got those, but like I, they're starting to show their wear. Little parts are like falling off and things like that. Um, and I think I, I don't know if I'm different than, than birders are generally, because like, I'll throw them in a backpack to go hiking for all day. In a case and stuff, but still pull them out. Or I'll hike with them for, like, miles, and they're sort of bouncing around on my chest while I'm doing it. 
And I'm wondering if I need like sturdier binoculars. And so that's what we were talking about with the Steiners. And I, yeah, I recommend Steiner. I mean, Steiner, I think their bread and butter is military binoculars. Yeah. And, you know, they, they design binoculars that are meant, you know, and let's face it, the military are notoriously hard on their, on their stuff. One would expect them to be sturdy yeah, equipment if you're and, using and military, military stuff tends to be overbuilt. Yeah. So, um, you know, the binoculars, two pair. I was so funny we call them pairs of binoculars because they're not, I mean, they have two It's lenses. one object with two lenses. Yeah. yeah. Or but two my, sets of lenses. Uh, my Steiners, I have two Steiners and, you know, a high, the highest and they make in like a middle range pair. I guess, I guess for them, they're lower end because they start at like 300 bucks or whatever. Okay. And I, they just seem extremely sturdy to me. Yeah. And I really like them. Awesome. Um, I want to mention a couple quick things. Uh, thank you to Dean Barada for chipping in recently on our Patreon account. Um, if you want to go to www.patreon.com slash urbanwildlifecast and, and help support the podcast, we are not a charitable organization. We're just a couple of guys who do this on the side. Um, and so what you'd be doing is just basically helping us buy the new equipment, <laughs> which will be really helpful. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I and improve, this, improve the sound quality for for you, the listener. We want to, you know, I want to, and I think Billy might be help part time. Give you a little clue behind the scenes of of our podcast. You know, Billy handles the bulk of the oh, right now entirely all the behind the scenes production. Uh, I hope to. I have edited a few episodes before, you like have, yeah. Um, and now when I um, in this studio, I was living in an apartment. And uh, I moved from a house with my own library and, and, and study and uh, to a um, to an apartment with my now wife. So my capacity to do stuff like that was diminished. Now in this, you know, I have a, a room almost dedicated to this now. So hopefully, I'm going to do a lot more of that. But I would like to do some podcasts that are more general than just urban. You know, ah um, uh, yes, yeah. I'd like to talk about international wildlife and and you know. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll expand a bit. We'll keep the, the name and everything, but we'll we'll have additional content that'll be more. Yeah, rolled. maybe like a separate stream of podcasts that yeah. we'll flag as like urban wildlife, urban wildlife podcast goes international or something. I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, well, we are international, but I mean, we are like, international. I guess it's not so much international, but like it goes rural. Dun, dun, yeah, dun. we'll talk. You know, like let's talk about like you know, I mean, animals you can't find in cities. You know. Yeah. So. Oh, I bet that'll be hard. We could try. Let's. It's an interesting challenge. Like. Pick an animal just because we like the animal, and then also, I bet it'll occur in a city somewhere. Yeah. Um, I just got back, I want to say quickly, from uh, the island of Vieques, which is off the coast of Puerto Rico. It's part of Puerto Rico, but it's a separate island from the main island of Puerto Rico, um, and had, uh, is not at all urban, the least urban place, well, it's not in the middle of nowhere. There's towns, but not a lot doing in terms of, of urban life, um, and... You were talking about island biogeography. <laughs> I was sitting there, like, explaining to Gigi, like, here's why this small island in an archipelago of islands will be less biodiverse than the islands closer to the mainland. <laughs> and we're going through, like, the, the species lists. Um, I found some cool stuff. It's just less biodiverse than, let's say, Cuba or the Dominican Republic. Um, or, you know, to take the mainland yeah. in the, the same kind of arc, like Panama. Um and so the uh, or even mainland Puerto Rico or mainland or right, but as you go, you get, you get less biodiverse. Um, 
I had found so my so the two big finds for me that I had a good time with were um, my the first blind snake I ever had in hand, mm. um, and so these are snakes that look like worms. Uh, they live underground all the time. They may they, they mainly eat ants or termites, and they have um, uh, uh, reduced eyes so that you have a scale over the eyes. The eyes are visible kind of as like two little spots underneath scales, so they really can't see very well, if at all. Um, and they just feel funky. They're like super, super smooth. Um, and then the other one was a bird called Adelaide's Warbler, um, where I was walking around and you'd hear them all over the place um, singing on the island, and I was sort of hearing them, and I was like, that's some kind of warbler. What kind of warbler is that? And I sort of glanced at the list before I, we left, and then I sort of like, I, I using my one burning skill, I pitched it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> the little guy, a couple little guys like popped out and gave me the, the once over. Um, and I was like, aha, uh, you're a new bird for me. Um, and so they're neat. They're like, a, I mean, if you're used to war, looking at warblers in eastern United States, um, and in Canada, you got like. <laughs> <laughs> that's, an east, that's not an eastern whip bird in here. That's my. Uh, um... It's his text tone because I left it on because we ordered a pizza earlier and I wanted to make sure I heard them. <laughs> so the the warblers are yellow, sort of the yellow gray, you know, charcoal and white color scheme you see on a lot of of they North American a lot like warblers. a Canada warbler or like a Grace's warbler. They do like yeah. The the Canada is what I was like. Oh, you look kind of like a Canada warbler, uh, which is one of our I think both of our favorite warblers. Fair to say. Oh, I love Canada warblers. Yeah, they're, they're cool little spectacular birds. Spectacular birds. Um, and so. I had a good time on the island with those, uh, and also they have, they have uh, feral horses all over the place, um, but also the first time I've been in a place where they're not native iguanas, mm. so iguana, I guess Miami, I've been to South Florida before, but like, I hadn't spent enough time looking up and looking up around, and around for iguanas, here they were everywhere, um, and a guide on a nature kind of trip we did referred to them as gallinas de palo. Um, which translates roughly as like branch chickens. <laughs> so <laughs> they're trying to get people to eat them um, because they're 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 inv- they're exotic. They're they're all over the place. Um, an interesting question for me as someone who loves reptiles and amphibians is: Would I eat iguanas? Um, and I'm vegetarian. Not there yet. Um, a couple. I of, would eat barbecued iguana. I might. It's the kind of thing that I might if I thought I was doing a service to the ecosystem. It's it's because you're in the position as a vegetarian. For me, as a vegetarian sort of understanding and supporting, like, in principle, the idea or the need to to kill certain animals that we have introduced or that are sort of pests, essentially. I kill mice as pests. I kill cockroaches as pests. But killing animals as pests that, therefore, if I'm, if I'm okay with killing them as pests, then, then I guess I should be okay eating them, too. I thought I did that. Sorry. That's right. Um, so, anyhow, that's a side topic. Next thing I wanted to mention is that you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet us at, tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. I want to mention something on Twitter real quick. I got our, our, our Twitter account, and I was, I guess, manning it at the time, got pulled into a discussion about... It started off as a discussion about environmental education for, for communities of color, basically. And then the, the, the thread slipped into the question of, like, well, especially for urban communities of color it's a shame there isn't better wildlife to to connect them to to get them excited about um about the environment about wildlife and i was like and i think the person who sort of tagged us into the discussion had the same idea i had which is like 
yo, 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 what are you talking about? Yeah. And at the moment, I happened to be walking out of my office building for my day job, my office building, which is at the edge of Center City and Old City in Philadelphia, basically a very urban area. As I sort of glanced at my phone, I looked up, and I'm walking to get my dry cleaning, um, and I'm walking past Independence Hall, which is, you know, one of the, the most famous buildings in North America, uh, and certainly urban. And I look up, and there's a red-tailed hawk perched on the, the weather vane on top of Independence Hall. So I took a picture of that. <laughs> it didn't come out great. But I was like, hey, I'm looking at a red-tailed hawk right now on Independence Hall. And then I got my, my jacket, and I was walking back. And what was on the weather vane? The, it's mate. So there were two of them sitting on the weather vane. So I was looking at a pair, which I see around. I see these hawks around there. So a mated pair of, of mature red-tailed hawks chilling on top of Independence Hall. And I got to be like, you know, there, there's wildlife yeah. here. Don't worry about it. It's a question of recognizing it and, 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 and considering the space as a valid space for environmental education. Um, and that's a whole other topic. But I, I enjoyed that little coincidence. That's funny. Did, did we, I don't know if we talked on the podcast about when I saw some cool raptors at Independence Hall recently. I was down there because there was a uh, alt-right rally. There was uh, it was known that some Proud Boys, so those. D-back. These are the guys who like are right wing, like sort of alt right, racists essentially. Well, but they 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 claim to be multicultural, and oh, but they're, fa- they're I mean they're absolute fascists. They're absolutely sexist. And like, they don't masturbate for some reason. So you encourage them to preserve their precious bodily. No, fluids? it's it's the <laughs> that's Doctor Strange love there. It's the uh, um it's to encourage them to um mingle with women to try to actually meet and date women because otherwise these guys are inept with girls yeah like, like <laughs> I mean like this is like seriously how it works I mean they're literally like I mean they sorry the Gavin McGinnis who founded them I mean they, they're they're pattern- the guy out of Vice yeah, was yeah so well I mean he's estranged from Vice and they don't yeah. like him um, but I mean he now uh, has disowned them because of their you know they're getting in trouble for their violent tactics, but he patterns them after the brown shirts. Like they're they're so they're really like a yeah. a, 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 a yeah. right wing street gang, and and what these people do is they appeal to losers. I mean, they absolutely appeal to losers. Like here, you can have some worth, you know. Yeah, yeah. and and like I'm sorry, but like you can say what you want about Antifa, um, which is, and for, as far as I'm concerned, bring all you know. I'll take all the Antifa you got because I hate Nazis, um, and of course you know the problem with Antifa. Is inevitably is any kind of movement is going to be people who are, are gung ho and, and try too hard and, yeah. and but like it's not a it's not an actual centralized movement. But same what you want about Tifa, but they get they, they get it on. They they yeah, you know yeah. they, they're not they're not pathetic. They don't celebrate being an involuntary celibate. So, yeah, and 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 uh. But wait, so what are the birds you saw? Right, so I was there protesting those d bags. Yeah, and there was by the way there was forty of them and. I don't know, at I'm least sure. a thousand yeah. of us. Yeah. But I was there, and I had brought my scope so I can digiscope pictures of Nazis okay. and, and fascists, right? And uh, and lo and behold, I see a Kestrel perched behind an Independence Hall on, on a tower. <laughs> Two, a pair of red tails are circling. And then there was a, a red tail and, and a, a peregrine were mixing it up over, <laughs> over, uh, over Independence Hall. So again, so... so You can go and you can... You can it's a great space for protesting. It's also just... Like almost everywhere else in the city that we live in, which is a pretty big urban city, it's still a fine place to observe wildlife. Back to it. So we, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the topic at hand, which is um, something, it's a specific topic that I was researching for Grid Magazine, which I write articles for, local Philadelphia environmental magazine. I write 
uh, an article every month on urban natural history topics. And so we had run into, um, I'd run into uh, a woman named Cynthia Schema uh, at an event at the Academy of Natural Sciences back in like March. And she had a table up talking about something called, and she's a botanist. Um, she is the uh, botanist, at, she's a botanist at the Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania and the lead principal investigator for something with a badass name, the Mid-Atlantic Megalopolis Digitization Project. And so we'll let her introduce and talk a little bit about it. It is a, a project where if you think of museum collections um, and you think of how plants are preserved in museum collections, and when you think museum collection, if you're someone who's like into reptiles and pippins like me, um, you think of jars of pickled animals. And if you're someone who's more of a bird person, you might think of skins and drawers and that kind of thing. Um, but with the plants, what happens is people press them dry them out, and sort of attach them to pages of paper. And those, so then you have sort of the pressed and dried uh, plant parts, flowers, leaves, seeds, whatever they can get on there. They're sort of the physical library of plants. The challenge, though, is how do you make that all searchable and, and, and something you can analyze and aggregate, that kind of stuff. There are various projects like this, digitization projects, so this is not exclusive to our region, but you probably have a, an herbarium digitization project where you are. Um, the idea is to scan these things with really powerful scanners. And then uh, the tricky part, which they use volunteers for, is digitizing the tag information. Mm. So you'll have the plant, and it's a digital image. But then you have like the notes that some collector wrote out in the 19-teens, or let's say the 1790s or something like that, that you then have to take and type into a database. And then there's another phase of this where they geolocate it. They sort of find the coordinates to go along where they think where that, that, that specimen is collected. And so once you can do that, then you make it into something that's really, that has a lot more potential to be used for bigger data kinds of projects. What they found, anything that wasn't actually printed out on a computer printer, so this could be anything typed or handwritten, that there aren't really good enough optical recognition software for that. You end up with enough errors that someone has to go in and fix them. It's just faster for someone to read the damn tag and type it in. It's a good role for volunteers. I talked to a volunteer named Susan Hepler, who had a great comment about how this is something she can do. She can pour herself a scotch, sit at the counter in her kitchen mm. in the afternoon, listen to NPR, and like type in some records, and thereby like help this project along. So that, why? Because she has she already has the she has pictures of the tags. So the, when you volunteer, what happens is yeah, you get the pictures, and then you have like a an interface like a, a a portal where you then type the written information into the database. Hmm. It's basically data entry, but it's data entry with some really cool old records. Like she talked about the fun of um, if you have a particular collector who you can follow their whole life, essentially, from when they started collecting something maybe in their 20s, you know, let's say in the late 1800s, hmm. and then like you can follow their records that they've submitted and then put into this collection, and then you see them like tail off in the 40s, and that's it, you know? My name is Cynthia Schema. So an herbarium is an archive of plant specimens. So the plant specimens are dried and pressed, and they are kept there. So it's basically, you know, each specimen is a, a physical specimen, an actual piece of a plant. Um, and then with that, you have the information that is from the point of collection. So what the specimen is, who collected it, where they collected it, when they collected it. That's sort of the bare minimum of the information that comes along with the actual physical specimen itself. And each, they all get mounted on, you know, archival grade paper. 
and then you know they come together into a collection and basically it's like a library of dead plants <laughs> with a lot cool. of scientific value it doesn't that doesn't make it sound like it has a lot of scientific value but that's the easiest way to describe it to people <laughs> well but then so sell it to somebody who might not immediately see the value in a library of dead plants why why is it important that we have these and and are able to share them yeah so so really Herbaria, the, the collections themselves are the closest thing we can get to a time machine of previous habitats, previous localities, previous um, ecosystems. We know that this plant was growing in this place at this time, and you know this person picked it up and put it on the sheet of paper. And it's it's really a remarkable thing because not only do we have that information about you know what plants were growing where and when, but there's also just you know almost a limitless, I say limitless because we may not yet have discovered all the things we can do with the actual physical specimen itself, but, you know, there's a lot of things that can come from having an actual piece of an organism dried and pressed, right? So, you know, when people started making plant collections 400 years ago or, you know, and actually putting them in herbaria, then I don't think they anticipated that one day we would be extracting DNA from them to use in, you know, molecular studies or something like that. So there's all these sort of... Um, really incredible things that come out of this physical specimen itself that, you know, just grow with our understanding of science and our developments in terms of techniques and technology. So it's really a, a valuable natural history collection. And plants are nice because they really lend themselves to that sort of collecting because they can be pressed. So, you know, you can get a lot more plant specimens into a space than you can, you can the, say, with, like, a fish collection or a bird collection, you know, just, just by, by, you know, actual um, logistics. So that's really nice, too. There's the historical aspect. So, you know, when you're looking at specimens from, say, you know, the 1860s and you start thinking about, well, this is this is phenomenal. This person collected this during the Civil War, right, in the Mid-Atlantic. So you start to think about well, that's 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 a real testimony to the amount of you know love and interest in plant collecting that this person had that they could do that at a time of you know social upheaval during a war you know and it, it just starts to resonate and really puts you in the frame of mind of that person I think a little bit more than maybe during peacetime you know so those are interesting and the academy found an incredible one during the MAM project um, Alana Benemy found this specimen from. Gettysburg that was collected I think like seven weeks or like a couple months after the battle on the battlefield it was a collection from the battlefield so that was a really incredible specimen that they um, they discovered in doing this digitization or rediscovered in doing this digitization project but um, the Enquirer wrote a nice piece on that so that was that was a really good one but but also you know there's the things that that occurred in places where they no longer occur. And that, that's always interesting. And that gets to sort of where, you know, we're interested in plant distributions and how they're changing, you know, thinking about what plants grew, where, when, and how that's changed over time. That's the nice thing. You know, that's the time machine aspect. That's where that comes in. Is it starts telling us about how the floor of Pennsylvania has changed and, you know, including in the cities. So just thinking about that sort of thing, you know, I was just looking this morning to sort of think about, well, okay, what's some, you know, more um, local examples? And I was looking at stuff from, you know, sort of the Wissahickon Park area and just thinking of, you know, the plants that used to grow there. There's some really interesting, like, trilliums or these walking ferns that have been picked up in that area, you know, in the 
late 1800s that don't occur there anymore. And I even found a, a, a specimen that was an example of a pink lady slipper, the orchid, um, Cypripedia macaulay, that was collected in, in 1950, you know, just down the road from the Arboretum here in Wissahickon Park wow. um, by Edgar Wary. But, you know, that's not something we see there anymore. Those are sort of the, the poster children for why herbaria are interesting, you know, to get get somebody who might not be you know, um, a plant geek already interested in these, you know, pressed plants, dried pressed plants. But um, yeah, but but the whole collection, you know, as as a a larger body, you know, in total can tell us things about how things have changed. Like I was saying about distributions, you know, it can help us figure out how flowering dates have changed. You know, some of our earliest specimens in this area are from late 1700s. So, you know, if you have specimens that are actually in flower, you can start to map out how flowering times may have vacillated with the weather or have changed, you know, in an actual trend due to things like climate change. So there's, you know, there's interesting questions from a scientific perspective that you get when you look at the totality of it, too, which is which is really interesting. And it's really, you know, that's the main impetus for the project. So the project itself is it's a digitization project that we call the Mid-Atlantic Megalopolis. And this is all funded by the National Science Foundation. They have a program called Advancing Digitization of Biodiversity Collections. So it's it's mainly a digitization program. And and for us, digitization means that you're you know, you you take a specimen, you take a high resolution image of that specimen, and we're using um fifty megapixel cameras, so you get nearly a one to one resolution. So it's almost like you're looking at the sheet itself when you're looking at the image. And then from that high resolution image, we actually transcribe all that collection data, the the label data or the locality data that I told you about, you know, who collected it, where they collected it, when they collected it. And then once that's transcribed from the image into an actual fields in a searchable database, it becomes much more useful, right? You can start sorting, you can start searching, you can start doing all sorts of things with the data once they've been databased. And that transcription step is really important because of the searchability. And then the last piece of that is to actually put a latitude and longitude coordinate on the specimen for where it was collected. And so some of that, you know, maybe like late 1990s onwards, we can have specimens that a lot long reference is actually taken at the time of collection with a GPS device, but, you know, besides those, you have no idea. So you actually have to go in and figure out, okay, this, you know, from written locality data, well, this is where the person was, and we use various software programs to pinpoint that to a latitude and longitude. You can't always do it perfectly. You know, there's some specimens that don't have specific enough locality data. It could just say, Pennsylvania or, you know, Philadelphia. And if you have that, you can't really get much accuracy in putting a point down. But but we do the best we can with the information that we have. And then once you have that, you start getting, you know, the actual geographical component to this. So you can learn a lot more about distribution once you have lat long assigned to these collections. And you can start looking at maps and you can start mapping different things with substrate and climate niche and all sorts of things. So that's that's where you start to see the power of these collections coming together. And these digitization projects, it's really where, you know, natural history meets big data. You know, that's this is where we're really pulling all of that information that, that is housed in these natural history collections into a digital form that's really useful for researchers. Our specific interest here, you know, we're in the Mid-Atlantic, Obviously, the name of the grant is pretty indicative of what our interest was. So, you know, we're talking about the megalopolis, right? So the Mid-Atlantic, you know, from Washington, D.C. to New York City, some people define it as going the whole way up to Boston. But for the purposes of the grant, we were talking about D.C. to New York. 
And, you know, it's the largest and oldest urban corridor in the United States. So for us, this really was, okay, well, let's see what we can learn from plant specimens, these dried collections, and get some idea of what's happened in urban areas, what has happened to the plant biodiversity in urban areas. And what we're actually digitizing is every specimen from all of the five states, you know, so we're doing New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, and then also Washington, D.C., the district itself. So from that region, the entire region, not just the cities themselves, but the entire region, we're looking at every plant specimen, digitizing it. And then that gives us the context for how things have changed inside the cities themselves. It's a three-year project. We're 13 different institutions collaborating from the states that I told you, and we're looking to digitize just about a million specimens. You know, we're at the point, so we're two years in on a three-year grant at this point. Probably most of our collaborators will take a year extension, so it'll be a four-year grant. So we're looking at, you know, a lot of people are in the transcription phase. We have a couple of people still imaging, but most people are in the transcription phase and just, you know, we're just looking to kick off the georeferencing part. So the main role that we have for volunteers in the project is in the transcription. So I told you that, you know, we have these high-resolution images and, um, but we have to get that information that's on the label in those images into a searchable database. So so the big hurdle there is, you know, getting people to actually just look at an image and sit down and type what it says into a, a database. You know, there's been a lot of attempts to use OCR software, so optical character recognition software, to have the computer actually go through and read what's on the label and, you know, give you, spit out some text, and then you parse that into different fields. And so, you know, we looked into all of that when we were sort of doing the prototype for the project and and realize that it's it's useful if you have very modern um, text, right? So, like, printed, you know, with a, a pretty modern computer and printer, and, you know, it's very legible and everything. But even – even so anything that's handwritten, the, the OCR software can't do, and then anything that's typewritten, even, the OCR software didn't do very well. So we discovered pretty early on that it was actually faster for a human to sit and type it than to have it run through the OCR. And – even, you know, if you do that in the background, just the time it takes to fix the OCR text and get it into the fields was was um, longer than it takes just to transcribe it. And then the other thing, having the volunteers actually look at specimens and transcribe them is a really nice way to engage people in what you're doing, right? So so there are a lot of people out there that, that you know, don't know much about plants and have no idea what a herbarium is. So this is your opportunity to not just tell them something like that, but also say, but look at these things. They're amazing, right? And and there's so many angles that people hook onto. Like some people are just total geography nuts, and they're like, oh, I know this location. This is, you know, the Evans house of, you know, out in Radnor and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so they'll hook onto that, or they are they're just interested in the historical aspects of actually sitting there looking at a sheet that came from, you know, was collected in 1810 or, you know, 1885 or whatever it was, Um so there's the historical aspect, and then you also have the plant geeks who are like, this specimen is amazing, I know this species, and or or there's actually, you know, we, we do get a lot of people that are just interested in the aesthetics of it, because there is something very aesthetically pleasing about a, a number of these specimens, I mean, they can be ugly, but some of them are very beautiful too, you know, they're plant parts arranged in a flat manner on a piece of paper, and, you know, when you start to look at them, it's it's attractive, especially if they're in flower, but also when they're not, you know, there's a nice repetition of form and all sorts of things there, so... So it just seemed like a really nice way to actually do some outreach and get people, you know, more knowledgeable, not just about the fact that, well, you know, 
these are plants and they're living organisms and they're important for these reasons. But also, you know, there's this entire entire community of scientists who make natural history collections and have been doing so for, you know, hundreds of years. And there's a lot of value in these things and we should all cherish them. So there's multiple organizations, um, institutions part of this project. Um, not just the Morse Arboretum, but institutions everywhere from like DC through New York. Um, I talked to Tatiana Livschultz from the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University here in Philadelphia. Tatiana is associate professor in the Department of Biodiversity, Earth and Environmental Sciences at Drexel University, um, and is associate curator uh, of the, in the Department of Botany at the Academy of Natural Sciences. And so Tatiana was talking about how she had, in, in their own records there at the Academy, found stuff that, that Benjamin Smith Barton, who was a prominent Philadelphia naturalist, botanist, had submitted from, or had collected from Bartram's Garden, mm. which has got its own fabulous history. We're not going to go into it now. Look it up. But it's a place you can go now as a park. You know, she spends time and looks at plants and hangs out in a place where a giant of mm. the field did his own collecting. You know? awesome. So you're sort of literally in the footsteps of people like that um, here in a big city. Um, so it's a fun angle on, on sort of the connection with the past that you can get through these collections. Tony, quick, uh, for those who don't know what a pick lady slipper is, what is it? It's um, a cool, you know, native orchid here, you know, with has like a, I'm trying to remember orchid plant parts, but like the, you know, the lower like lips of the orchid flower are really like deep and like, it almost looks like a, like a pitcher plant. Yeah. But it's, but it's not, it's an orchid. And, uh, but there's still lady slippers in the park. Oh, there are? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Hey, podcast listeners. I circled back to check in with Cynthia Schema about this. She said that actually right after the Grid article ran, somebody got back in touch with her to let her know about lady slippers growing in the Wissahickon. In her email, she wrote that she's happy that the pink lady slippers are still there and clearly being carefully monitored by at least one phytophile. So if you want to volunteer with the MAM digitization project, send an email over to mamdigitization at gmail.com. Again, mamdigitization at gmail.com If you're someone who's into the citizen science thing maybe you're someone who likes going out and looking at reptiles and amphibians during the herping season but in the winter you got nothing to do um, you can become a volunteer with the Mid-Atlantic Megalopolis Project Contribute to science <laughs> and also if you do research especially urban research you should talk to us about being on the podcast Indeed We are you know we don't have that many Twitter followers. Maybe if we were more active on Twitter, we would. But we have like close to seven hundred or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it helps us get the word out about episodes. But I swear, about half of those people are researchers in this in the field, which <laughs> which is great because it's like you know it warms my heart so much when you know I'll I'll take a screen cap of our followers and send it to Billy. But like, look at these awesome people who are yeah, following yeah, us. Yeah. You know, like, but it would be great to hear from you. We think what you do is cool, and you're the exact people we'd like to talk to about your research. Yeah. I'm going to say something dangerous. We're running low on topics at the moment. I don't have a whole lot planned out beyond this episode. Got a couple ideas, but not a ton. If you've got a cool idea about what you do and what you research or something that, even if you're not a researcher, if you're just someone who's more like me, who's more of a lay person but really gets into urban wildlife, I mean, heck, this can be in Baltimore, this can be in Tokyo, uh, let us know and we'd love to hear from you and what it is you have a passion for and what you can introduce to the sort of to the audience that we have. I wouldn't say it's massive, but it's got a heck of a lot of geographic scope. 
Yeah. A lot of listeners in, in Japan, in England, in uh, Australia, various other countries over the, all over the world. So we know you're out there. And I think we probably, I think if you are a human being listening to our podcast, which only human beings listen to our podcast that I know of, you have, there's a 70% chance that you live in a city about. <laughs> so, you know, like, there's lots of, there's lots of, uh, yeah, we want you. Oh, I know what I wanted to do. I had, I had a fantasy about Tony coming up with a, uh, John Henry was a steel driving man, like adaptation about digitizing, uh, humans digitizing stuff versus optical recognition software. Mm. But maybe I'll have to wait for another episode. Yeah, me and Matt can work on that. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to quickly mention, just because we got to hype this, the City Nature Challenge is coming up April 26th, 29th. We're doing it for Philadelphia. It's going to be big. cncphilly.org if you're in the Philadelphia area and you want to get involved. But I'll say this is happening in cities all over the globe. You talk about Tokyo. Tokyo's taking part. Pittsburgh's taking part. Mazatlan is taking part. Various cities in South America and Africa and Australia and so on and so on. Europe. So check out if your city's taking part um, and uh, get out there and help show the people who just might not know it what kind of wildlife, uh, what kind of nature, what kind of plants, fungi, even slime molds mm. that we've got in cities. Absolutely. All right. Take care, guys. Cheers.